Hello and welcome to Between the Mountains podcast, where we talk about your adventure travels from backpacking to expeditions. And today is a special one. We've got Graham Zimmerman. He is a fantastic mountain climber and I give him a really big intro at the start so that we're all on the same page about his fantastic achievements. We talk about mountain climbing, mindset, positivity. We talk about finding that perfect route. And we also talk about climate change too. So I hope you enjoy it. If you do enjoy it, then please feel free to follow, subscribe, and share it with a friend that you think may like it too. But otherwise, let's just dive straight into the interview. So hello, Graham. Welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Hey, uh, I am great. Thanks for thanks for having me on. I'm delighted to be here. And I'm, I'm well. I'm at home in Bend, Oregon, in the United States. And... It's kind of an overcast day here, and we're we're still very much in social distancing uh, territory. So it's a great day to be sitting and chatting on the phone with you. Yeah, for sure. I mean, if you're listening in the future, firstly, how is it? But secondly, yeah, we are at time of recording in quarantine. So, um, so yeah, welcome. Yeah, we're looking. If you're in the future, we're looking forward to your reality. <laughs> yeah, in a very big way. <laughs> So for those who don't know, in his own words, Graham is an award-winning professional climber, a well-recognized creative, and a vocal climate activist. Graham Zimmerman is more than just an alpinist with the best mustache, though. Based currently out of Oregon and with nearly two decades of mountain climbing experience, consisting of many first ascents, awards for excellence, uh, excellence and New Zealand Alpinist of the Year, Graham is extremely established with the climbing and expedition community. Starting at 15 and cutting his teeth in the Southern Alps, New Zealand, Graham has gone on to climb in areas such as Alaska, Patagonia, Pakistani Karakoram, Canadian Rockies, Himalayas, Kazakhstan, always searching for that perfect route up the mountain. Graham has a wonderful balance of humidity, safety and sheer determination which make for an iconic and influential climber, but alongside this... He has a hydroglaciology degree, which led to him working as a geophysicist and a search and rescue technician for many years. Now climbing full time, this love has led him to not only continue to climb big mountains in awe of their beauty, but also give back and work with companies such as Protect Our Winters towards raising awareness and creating an impact towards climate change. Graham, with a resume like that, I really appreciate you coming on today. Thank you for your time. <laughs> oh, it's it's great to be here. Yeah, that's that was... Uh... That, yeah, you, you really got out all of it there. Um, <laughs> and we're out of time. Thank you very much. In many, in many ways, I'm just, uh, I'm just, you know, a, a dog owner and a coffee drinker hanging out in Central Oregon as well. Uh, I like that introduction too. <laughs> Perfect. So, first question is: as someone who's born and studied and started climbing in New Zealand, but you live in the U.S. and you've done climbs all over North America, what are the cultural differences like between the two countries? What are the cultural differences like between New Zealand and the United States? Wow, uh, that's, I mean, that's a pretty, that's, that's a very big question. Um, if you want to tie and, it down to climbing, you can. Yeah, I'll I mean, I'll, I'll kind of take it from, I'll take it from the, the broader perspective and then zero it into the, the climbing community. I think that, um, uh, you know, if we look at the political and cultural differences between the United States and New Zealand right now, um, they're very they're very different. I think that, you know, we were just talking about how we're dealing with a global pandemic. And uh, I would argue that the United States is uh, not being a good example of what to do 
whereas New Zealand most certainly is. And they're, I think they're kind of on opposite sides of the spectrum, which is, which is really interesting for me to consider in terms of my influences uh, on a broader, broader kind of scope. But um, as we look at the, um, the climbing communities in the mountains, you know, there, there are there are very, two very interesting communities. I think that the United States, you know, has a lot of our a lot of our climbing has been focused around Yosemite. A lot of our climbing has been focused around rock climbing, uh, big walls, that kind of thing. Whereas in New Zealand, you have this amazing access to these mountains that are not super tall. They're similar in height to, you know, kind of the Alps of Europe. Um, I guess maybe that's partially why they're called the Southern Alps, um, the, uh, the uh, mountains down on the South Island of New Zealand. Uh, but they have huge glaciers, very complex uh, approaches, very complex climbs, real big weather, um, and, and many of them are quite remote. And what that means is that those mountains are an amazing training ground for the biggest mountains in the world. I would say that the mountains of New Zealand are rather akin to mountains of somewhere like Nepal, but just much easier to get at. And so for me, it's been really interesting to kind of look at the two influences of the American climbing scene and the New Zealand climbing scene of, you know, I did live in Yosemite for a number of years. I did. I worked on the Yosemite search and rescue team. I've climbed El Capitan a whole bunch of times, that kind of thing, which is a very, very cool and very informative um, kind of part of the climbing spectrum, particularly as it applies to that really, really high-end technical climbing. But then I have this background in New Zealand where, you know, we're dealing with these big complex glaciers. We're dealing with very fickle mountain faces and, and, you know, honestly, big, big mountain environments. And I think that as I look at my climbing career, as I look at you know, the best climbing that I've done and, you know, the kind of success that I've had, I think much of it has been blending those two things. So taking that rock climbing and that kind of like high-end technical climbing that we've so developed in the States and then, you know, taking the, you know, there's also a lot of really high-end climbing in New Zealand, but the thing that I got at as much as anything while I was down there was that, like, how do you approach a really big complex objective that, you know, might have far more to do with how you get there and what's going on with the weather than even the objective itself. And when you when you add a really significant, big, technically challenging objective to that, it uh to that kind of equation, you know, it creates you know it really edges us towards you know this this thing that has become my goal in climbing, which is going to the biggest mountains in the world, um, you know, places like the Karakoram, and trying to do high-end technical routes that have never been done before in those spaces. And I think that, I think that really, as I look at my background, it really, you know, it's in some ways kind of a, kind of easy to see how, how I got there. Yeah, for sure. Keeping it generic and open for now, at least, um, yeah. you have been the first to climb new routes, such as the indirect American on Mount McDonald, which you were eyeing up for quite a while. How do you feel when you're doing new routes and what are your drives for the new routes aspect, especially when we're comparing to, like you just said, doing things like El Capitan? Well, 
You know, it's it's really interesting. Like one of my favorite things about climbing is that we each get to choose how we get at it. We each get to, you know, there's no, there's no, there are no rules in climbing besides be nice to the people around you and be nice to the environment. If you're doing those two things, if you're not leaving a bunch of trash all over the place and you're not ruining somebody else's experience, whether that's your climbing partner or another party, then you can really do whatever you want. And uh, we can talk all day about ethics and things like that, but, um, and the podcast, (laughs) Yeah, whole other podcast, but uh, but that's but really, but there's a lot of choice in the matter. So, if you want to go and repeat things that are really challenging, you can do that. If you want to go try to do new things, you have a lot of choice in terms of what types of things you can get at, whether that's big mountains or it's climbing on El Cap or it's single, single, uh, really hard rope lengths, you know, off the ground or even bouldering, which you know is short enough that you don't need a rope, and. Uh, and so, so all that you, so we have all this choice. And so the thing that I have gravitated towards and I've really gravitated towards, I think since, gosh, I mean, really since I was like a teenager is this idea of exploration in wild spaces. And as I have developed with that, I've really fallen in love also with exertion. So a lot of my goals in the mountains are combining uh, heavy exertion with wild places and a sense of exploration, and the best way for me to get at that exploration is to do things that haven't been done before. Nice. I like that. And talking about those new routes, which you are definitely not a stranger to, I'm wondering just how much research goes into the routes, and really the angle I'm taking out here, because obviously a lot is the answer there, (laughs) but at what point does it come that you just need to get on the mountain and start climbing? Well, that's that's a really interesting question. I mean, a lot of the things that I'm trying to get at, uh, you know, if we talk about this thing, Linksar, that we did last summer, mm. um, you know, the climbing was really technical, but there's this much broader aspect of um, being able to actually get the permit and get to the peak. It's in the it's in the uh, it's it's in this area of conflict between Pakistan and India, and you know, similar to that Mount McDonald climb not in that it's in a conflict zone, but that that was unique in the sense that we had to time it just right before the highway uh, closed down, or I guess before before the highway that runs down there was reason for closing those mountain slopes to overnight climbs because of avalanche hazard. But So it had to be before that, but then the mountain still had to be in winter condition because it was very much an ice and mix climb. And so we had to time it just right and had to do a lot of research and communication with Parks Canada in order to make sure, A, that we were following the rules and that, B, it was worth going. Yeah. So, and that's all, all that stuff is ancillary to the actual climbing itself. And then when you actually look at the climbing itself, you know, you have to kind of identify the parts of the climb that are, you know, look like they'll go pretty quickly. And you have to identify what I like to refer to as the kind of question marks, those things that you don't know what they're going to require. They're probably going to be the hardest bits. And those are always kind of the thing that you sort of focus on in terms of, you know, what kind of like absorb your imagination. But as you zoom out from that, you have to really consider, you know, what are the things on the climb that or on the mountain or in that mountain range that are likely to kill you? Because those are the things you have to avoid. Things like 
uh, bad snow slopes, things like seracs, same things like features that hold a lot of rockfall. And, uh, and so we have, to, we have to make sure and balance, like, okay, are we staying away from terrain and features that are likely to kill us? Are we climbing, are we looking at terrain where we can have a, high, you know, have a reasonable likelihood of getting up the thing? And then can we actually even get there and access this thing, you know, legally? And so those are, all that requires a lot of research. And it's far more than just, you know, the climb or just the pitch. You know, it's all about, you know, how do we get there? How can we do it safely? And then it kind of comes down to the climbing. And, you know, and that, that always starts with a very broad look at the whole problem. And then you start to narrow in on different segments and kind of solve them individually. And then you reach a point where, you know, generally speaking, you still have a few question marks but you feel confident that A, I'm able to get there, B, I should be able to climb at least portions of this route, so it's worth giving it a try, and B, there's nothing, or sorry, I guess C, there's nothing that's like hanging above it or that I'm exposing myself to on this climb that is going to have a high probability or even a uh, you know, medium or small probability of of you know damaging me or my partners mm. and once you've answered all those questions then you're really at a point where you can go start trying the objective yeah perfect because yeah, it's um the, the the simpler analogy i was thinking in my head was about you know reading how to do a press-up but that is that is only similar not the same and very very simple so yeah um that's good to know that there's that much that needs to go in before you actually get onto the mountain it's comforting <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a lot to it, and it's kind of one of those like you know, how do you eat an elephant, one one bite at a time, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, it's this huge thing, but you just chip away at it, and that's why these projects take years because, you know, it's the Linksar project, uh, and you know, the Linksar project took almost twenty years in terms of when Steve Swenson started trying it. Uh, the McDonald project was like a six-year project. Uh, I was only really part of the last two or three. Uh, my partner, uh, Chris Wright, had been skiing up there a lot and eyeing that face for seven or eight years. And uh, and that's you know that's the case with a lot of th these things. It's pretty rare these days that you know we'll just like come up with some idea last minute and and then go flying and try it. You know, it's each there are kind of all these irons in the fire when it comes to different objectives, these kind of different big things that we want to try. And you're just kind of slowly picking away at which ones seem reasonable at any given time. Yeah. To the point where on one of the podcasts I was listening to was, I can't remember which mountain you were climbing, but one section wasn't quite the same when you were there. And you, you knew of the contingency route to, that you could go down if that wasn't the case. Like that level of research where you're on the mountain, but you've already done the research before. To, to look at alternative ways around the particular spot, which I really like. Yeah, I mean, and that's and that's that's a really important note is that you're not only talking about how you get up, because you, because success in mountain climbing does not only involve going up; it, it involves just as much going down. So you have to understand how you're going to get yourself out of a sticky spot, even if you're only part way up the peak. Mm. Yeah. So you were climbing in Alaska and you noticed that uh, perfect route, the northeastern eastern buttress of Mount Lawrence. Yeah. 
that you've spoken about it quite a bit. Um, and if you want to go into detail, you're more than welcome to. But my question really is, are there any other routes that you've spotted that you really want to do? Um, I mean, the answer to that is absolutely. Um, <laughs> and I think that, and I think that kind of something, uh, just because I'm not going to, I'm not going to tell you what they are because those are kind of my little secrets. <laughs> um, but, uh, I think that the thing, that thing that you'll really enjoy is a sense of, I see, I see climbing and I see alpinism and I see building, you know, this kind of, this list of things that I have to try. It's, I don't do it by looking at what other people have done. That's oftentimes a good starting place. That's oftentimes a really important part of the research process. But for me, the best part of this whole thing and the best way to come up with those objectives is to create relationship with space. So that that uh, northeast buttress on Mount Lawrence was something that we saw from another exploratory climb. And so we, two years before, were in an area in Alaska called the Lacuna Glacier, which is part of Denali National Park, kind of there with uh, Denali, the highest mountain in, in North America. And we had identified this peak that had never been climbed, that looked cool. Uh, we had seen some photos of it from a, uh, from a uh, local pilot. And, and so we'd gone and tried to figure out how to get to that thing. And it took us like a month to find the right way and get up the damn thing. And it was a whole bunch of effort. And, uh, and we get to the top. And in many ways, that could have been the end of the story. That, mm -hmm. oh, we, we identified this peak. We went and climbed the thing. The story's finished. But the thing that you always do when you're on top of a mountain is you look around. And you can look around and just say, oh, this is, this is really beautiful. But more often than not, what I what I seem to gravitate towards is looking around for other cool objectives. Because the best place to see the mountains from, maybe with the exception of an airplane, is from the tops of other mountains. Mm -hmm. And so that northeast buttress on Mount Lawrence we identified from the top of what we had earlier named Voyager Peak. And so it's really it's really what this comes down to is is a relationship with space and the idea that investment in space and time spent in an area is the best way to progress within that space and identify what those kind of next things to do are. Perfect. So talking about Alaska, how does climbing in remote areas like the Karakoram compare to knocking on, um, knocking infamous mountains off the checklist in areas like Chamonix and Alaska? Um, well, I guess, I guess Alaska is interesting because there is, there's a lot of exploration to do up there. And, yeah. um, and I'd say that, I mean, I, I don't really know Chamonix very well. I've only spent a few days climbing there. I mean, that area is pretty thoroughly Thoroughly, thoroughly done. <laughs> thoroughly, yeah, I, I mean, but that said, there are you know there are consistently new routes being opened even in Chamonix, mm -hmm. and um, and I think that's something we have a choice with, and this kind of is something we were talking about earlier, is whether we want to go and try to either repeat what people have done before us, or mm -hmm. to go and try to do existing climbs in new ways, either faster or in a better style or whatever, um, or to go and seek those areas that have not yet been explored, have not yet been um, 
you know, kind of like climbed upon. And you could do that in Chamonix for sure. Uh, you know, you can you can go find things that haven't been done. It's much harder, and they will be those areas that have not been visited, have not been climbed on, are much are much smaller um, in the sense that you won't find a you won't find a whole cirque of mountains in Chamonix that haven't been climbed on. Whereas you can find that in Alaska, and you can certainly find that in places like the Karakoram. Hmm. And uh, and I think it's you know, and I, so so I think that you know your kind of attitude of what you want to get at um, can apply to any of these places. But when you start looking somewhere like Alaska or you look start looking at somewhere like the Karakoram, your opportunities for things that haven't been done, haven't been visited, are you know, totally untouched uh, is much, much greater. And I do think that an important note on that is that, you know, if we look at, if we compare um, climbing to... Uh, if you, if you compare climbing to art, uh, or I guess, I guess art is kind of the easiest thing. Like when you, when you look at the best way to learn a form of art, it generally involves copying the people who you look up to, emulating their work and learning how they did that and then building upon that. Mm. And I think that climbing is just the same way. And for somebody who's just getting into climbing, somebody who's just, you know, even, or just getting into first ascents. I would suggest that they go and repeat things that are in a style that they find to be inspiring and figure out what those look like and think about what it would have been like to make that first descent and then move into the space of trying to do new things. So being being progression oriented with it, with, a, with, a, with an eye to the past of how people have done this before is something really powerful. So would you recommend looking at roots and copying the roots or i when you talk about style are there certain mountaineers who you could pick out and go i really like how this guy this guy climbs i'm gonna try and see if i can do what he does both both of those things for sure mm. yeah i mean if you're like i want to climb hard roots on north faces then go repeat some existing roots on hard north faces but if you are like this is the, and then and then when you're looking at those roots think about who you want to be climbing like so if you're like oh I want to be climbing like Swenson. I want to be climbing like Wojtek. I want to be climbing like, uh, you know, who, whoever. Um, see what inspires you. Understand why it inspires you and go and emulate it until you can go and build upon that yourself. Perfect. And talking about emulating things, have you ever gone back to a mountain that you really enjoyed to try and relive that moment? Um, interesting. Yeah, I mean, in some in certain areas, absolutely. Um, like certainly in places like Yosemite or Smith Rock, where I live close to home, there are routes that I do over and over again, just because I really enjoy them, because I really like them, because I want to be able to do them better or faster. But when you start looking at the investment that it takes to go to somewhere like the Karakoram, I tend not to repeat things out there, just because there is so much effort involved, and and you know that's. That's physical effort, that's finances, that's time. And if I'm going to go out there and invest all those things in a project, I'm, you know, it's going to be something that is new and that I am deeply inspired by. For sure. And I like the fact you brought up the, the topic of art as well. Um, I heard someone referring to you as being quite artistic. Uh, it was an expat um, excerpt on YouTube. said you're quite artistic with your view of mountains. That's cool. um, <laughs> Yeah. And um, 
And I'm just wondering, how do you go, how do you go about recording your climbing? I know that you tell stories through videography and cinematography, but do you just take photos? Do you journal at the bottom of the mountains? How do you document and record these things? Yeah, um, you know, kind of all of the above. I think that for me, uh, I do take a lot of photos. Um, I shoot a lot of video. I actually run a filmmaking company, so that's that's a big part of what I do professionally. And I do, you know, and, and there's you know, I do keep the kind of Graham Zimmerman athlete and Graham Zimmerman content producer. I keep those things separate as much as possible, but they do, they do bleed into each other a mm. lot inevitably. Yeah. Um, which is, which is great. Um, and so I, so I do really make a point to get the camera out as much as I can and to make sure that I'm carrying a camera kit that I can utilize uh, with ease, it's not cumbersome. Um, you know the whole saying of the best camera that you, the best camera is the one that you have with you. Me, you know, means that I that I really think about how I'm carrying my camera so that when a you know when a beautiful frame does show up, I don't have to like dig around my pack or take my backpack <laughs> off or whatever. Like oh, you know, and then and then and then the moment is passed. I make sure that it's right there on me, ready to go at all times. And then, in terms of writing, uh, I do I do end up doing a lot of writing. Um, I guess at this point, I'm like reasonably well published, which is kind of funny because I don't think of myself as a very good writer. But <laughs> um, but I do I do really uh, make sure and do a lot of writing while I'm trips. Generally speaking, that's while I'm in base camp. And my methodology there is kind of fun. I've really started to I've started kind of figure out that I need to take diligent notes on what happens. Just A to B to C to D. Here's what happened today. Here's what happened on this attempt. You know, here are the kind of nuts and bolts. And those tend to be your plot points. But then as I'm sitting there making those notes, I will always give myself space in my journal to you know, take, take a moment and write kind of some flowery exposition on something that happened. Oh, and here, and, and then, you know, oh, and, you know, oh, and then we climbed pitch two, and it was like this, and then I was on pitch three, and it was like this, and oh, as I looked out from pitch three, you know, we had this beautiful, you know, the, the clouds were breaking, yeah. and it was a stunning moment, and the storm cleared, or the storm was coming in, or Steve said this great thing, or yeah. whatever, you know, it's kind of give, give yourself those, give yourself that ability to, like, make sure and get those, those, uh, kind of plot points down, but also to give yourself the time and the space to to get a little to get a little flowery. Is then then when you go to write about something later, you have these little memories that are kind of captured, um, and and they can be really authentic, and that you kind of you can you can plug and play with those a little bit as you're writing. Yeah, in an interview with John Gupta, he uh, when you were talking about down downtime at base camp, there he was talking about how he always brings Connect Four with him. Because it's <laughs> it's a it's a game that is multilingual. <laughs> All you have to do is get it, get four things in a row. That's <laughs> can, awesome. Yeah. So yeah, that, he he says he brings it everywhere. <laughs> oh, that's I love that. That's great. Perfect. So you're really known for your positive approach, like I mentioned in the introduction. Uh, so I am interested to know at what point you bring out your rose-colored glasses. You can see it logically or you can take it spiritually. But when you are on big mountains like your first ascent of Linksar and things didn't go to plan, 
side note, they did in the end. <laughs> but, um, things didn't go to plan. How do you manage your mindset and your interactions with the team? That's a really interesting question. Um, I don't know if I would like. I think that I think that the term "rose-colored glasses" is something that generally, at least when I, as as I think about the that, it kind of means ignoring the negatives, ignoring the things yeah. that are bad. And I think that I, I really work hard not to ignore the, the danger, ignore, you know, the things that, that might hurt or kill me or my climbing partners. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, that's super, that's super irresponsible up there. But at the same time, oftentimes, you know, climbing is not something that is particularly fun a lot of the time. You know, you're tired, you're cold, you're hungry, you're physically exhausted. Um, and that's and that's something that is true not only on the climb itself, but oftentimes while you're acclimatizing, while you're training for the objective, while you're trying to rack up, wrap up that work project, while, you know, before you get out the door for that long expedition or whatever. It's something that, you know, can be really construed as pretty miserable. Mm. And something I really try to remind myself of is that, you know, this is what you asked for. This is this is what you get, and you, yeah. you should probably try to enjoy it. And so I so I really lean into that that idea that you know this is like this is something that you found inspiring. This is something that you decided that you wanted to do. So just so just get into it. And it's you know at those moments where you're cold or you know it's you know you're not necessarily like at risk. You're just not necessarily. Like you're not necessarily that happy. Yeah. Just do do what you can to shift that narrative and say, "We're doing it, man." I, you know, oh, I may not have eaten for a day. I may be on top of a mountain and have run out of food and be looking at two days of descending. I may be, I may have brought the wrong jacket and be really cold. I may have misread the weather and it's. I thought it was going to be blowing, you know, a little bit windy, and now it's blowing 120 or. You know, whatever, whatever the thing is, whatever that thing is that is that is not to plan or you didn't visualize just how crappy it would be. You have a choice of getting miserable or just kind of like just just kind of getting into it and yeah. engaging with it and recognizing that this is this is what you ask for. This is what you get. So just, you know, just enjoy yeah. it. Yeah. Um, and so that's and I think by leaning leaning into that, leaning into that idea of, you know, uh, kind of enjoying that experience, even if that experience is not necessarily fun, is something that I've really worked hard on. And, you know, it has given me the ability to, to maybe like, you know, make light of things that are, that, that are not that much fun. But at the same time, um, you know, making sure to keep in mind, you know, what is the difference between discomfort and danger and mm. really, really being strict about that, that dichotomy. And, and I think that the, uh, you know, as we, as we kind of broaden that perspective out, we can start to look at, you know, looking at things from a negative perspective or looking at them from a sense of opportunity. And as we start to kind of apply that same mindset to business or creativity or relationships or whatever you know you start moving to a space where things that are hard 
are not necessarily bad. Yeah, for sure. Next be good. The way the way I see life anyway is the two parallel lines. The top one is reality, and that's the truth, and that's what's happened. And the bottom line is your perception, and you you can either choose to take be bummed out by it, or you can see it as an opportunity to grow, or you can. Um, a bit like you're saying, you know, you chose to be there. That applies for everything. I've been in jobs before where it sucked, and I've been thinking, well, you know, I signed the contract, so um, yeah. This, and so, this two is parallel your, this lines. This is your fault, like you know. Yeah. Eat it. <laughs> in, in a very good way. This is your fault. So just do it. Yeah. 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 This, this is what you wanted. <laughs> you can't choose the top one. You can obviously you can do it. You like to influence it, but you can't choose the top one, the bottom one, the perception. That's that's how. Because that the truth, what you know, is the same irregardless. Irregardless, that's an annoying word, isn't it? But uh, regardless, uh, the top one is the truth, but the bottom one is the perspective that you can change. So, yeah, I quite like that. Yeah, yeah, totally. And and I think it's really interesting because you do have to, you know, like you know, if you're under a serac or if you're high on a mountain and there is a real storm coming in, you 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 can't you can't say, oh, it's going to be fine. You have to say, oh, we're going to start making decisions that are going to that are going to make sure we stay alive. Yeah. But you know, that's, that's different than like, Oh, I'm cold. I'm wet. Yeah. I'm hungry. This sucks. Versus like, I'm cold. I'm wet. I'm hungry. Like what, why, why did you think this was a good idea again? Okay. <laughs> let's, let's think about that and lean into it. But and I suppose, we can, and we can giggle about that. To go back to the rose colored glasses analogy. Like if you were to take that, I, I guess, the idea is that you want there to be a slight tint. You don't want it to be a blindfold, right? So, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's totally that's totally fair. Maybe that maybe that analogy does work, but I just you know yeah, it's I like bit, yeah. I, I think I think that like there's one there's one uh, there's there's like I guess maybe there are two directions you can take with that. One is a space of ignorance where you enjoy it because you're not willing to acknowledge the danger or the strife. Mm. But then there is the kind of opposite where you engage with that strife in a way that is positive and therefore you can enjoy it. Always the latter, please. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, why not? <laughs> so we often hear the quote, the more the merrier. And reading about your ascent of, uh, of, of Linksar, the team seemed to grow quite quickly. Uh, you, you quickly added on climbers and then, then you added on the porters. So I was wondering, how does the dynamic of solo or duo compare with a large group working together? And do you have a preference? Well, okay, so, so you know, back to the idea of we can kind of get at the mountains however we want. Mm. And some people love to spend time in the mountains by themselves. And mm. if we disregard the discussion of risk, I think that's great. Um, personally, I love the component of climbing that involves partnership and involves community. Mm -hmm. And one of the huge values for me of time spent in the mountains is those relationships that come from that time. So for me, combining that with the fact that when you add a climbing partner or a couple of climbing partners to that equation you increase your safety it's a no-brainer for me to go with one one or two other climbing partners mm. oftentimes in my career that's only been one other partner all the climbing i've done in alaska or most of it at least has been with one other climbing partner same in canada mm. same in kyrgyzstan 
Pakistan. Yeah. You know, most of that's been, or Pakistan, Patagonia, stuff, places like that. Most of that's been with just one other partner. And then, and it's, it's, it's really interesting as you start to look at climbing in a place like the Karakoram, the complexities increase dramatically. Um, we also have the element of wanting to make sure that we look after the local communities whom we're working with. So when we're looking at hiring porters, hiring cooks and things like that, you know, it's really easy to look at that and say, oh, that's bad style because they're getting help. But there's also the flip side of that of these folks need need work. Yeah. We have, you know, like we are in such a place of privilege that we're traveling to their areas and going to like do something that that has no no real benefit to us or anybody else. <laughs> and so and they're like oftentimes these like subsistence farmers. Mm. And so lots of times we'll hire as many people as we can because like mm. These, these folks need work. They need they need us to be contributing to their local economies. So it's not a sense of like good or bad form of are you getting help or not? It's good or bad form of like what is what is it that you're leaving behind? And and so that's you know when you know it's like this summer in Pakistan we had we had like two cooks and a few porters. You know we we had we had like we had quite a bit of staff mm-hmm. and it was just you know. It, like it was helpful, of course. You know, it's nice to have somebody there to cook your food. Yeah. But you know, I can I can cook my own damn food. That's fine. Mm-hmm. But I can also you know hire Rasul and pay him to hang out with me for the summer, and it means that he can like put his kid through school. Exactly. Um, and so that's you know so that's so that's kind of where that comes from. And then as we start looking higher on the mountain, in the case of Linksar, you know that's uh you know above advanced base camp, then we get to the point where we are only going with our team. And on Linksar, it was really interesting because we did have a team of four, which is pretty unusual. Um, lots of times a team of three is really nice because it works well with our rope systems. And it means you have three people, which increases your safety margins, gives you more kind of like uh, horsepower to work with, if you will. Yeah. Um, but in terms of the team of four on Linksar, Linksar was a fascinating mountain because... Lots of times these really hard objectives we're looking at, you're sitting on the glacier and you're looking up at this line up a really steep part of the hill and you're like, okay, cool, we're going to go do that. And a lot of it is somewhat obvious from the ground. Whereas on Linksar, it was a super complex mountain. It required lots of route finding. It required a ton of knowledge about mountains and so on that team that team was really interesting because we had two young guys chris and i who were you know both you know highly competent technically speaking are you know in the you know very we're both very experienced alpinists but then we had these two guys who were in their 60s who were both really strong but uh you know probably couldn't keep up with you know couldn't keep up with chris and i on something that was only that only had technical aspects and not as much kind of logistical stuff, but their logistical acumen with climbing in the Karakoram is immense. Mm-hmm. So we created this team that was a combination of young strength and bravado with um, the kind of knowledge of and knowledge and uh, and patience of an older generation. And those and I really I really I really feel that those two things were very necessary to get up that mountain. And that's why that climb was pretty unique was because it required not just the strength of youth and the cutting edge, but it required the knowledge 
of the past generation. And that's, and that's, uh, that's honestly why it required so many of us up there. And it's honestly why it's the best climb I've ever done. Yeah. Um, which is pretty cool. Um, yeah. But yeah. Is that, can I answer your question? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, I mentioned uh, a very bad example of, of reading a manual of how to do a press up. You, you know, you just got to go and do the press up. Um, oh, but great, this great. one is this one's a little bit better, which is um, that the uh, to keep it on the same sort of industry, if you like, uh, squats. You know, the idea that it's comparable to life is about something heavy bringing you down and you stand back up again. And I was, yeah, and I was wondering, do you draw any parallels between climbing mountains and and life itself? Oh, oh yeah. Climbing, I mean, climbing mountains is all, is all an analog for everything, everything else I do, whether it's business or relationships or uh, advocacy work, you know, it's all, it's all about uh, being determined and applying grit, but doing so in a way that is both effective and healthy. Mm. And that's, that's really what climbing in the big mountains is all about and you know if you look at you know business per se you can work really really hard at you know being being you know running a business but if you're not smart about it then you're probably not going to get anywhere you're not going to get to where you want to go um likewise if you're really smart about it but you don't work hard you're going to have the same problem so you have to you have to combine those two things. And that's something that I do in climbing. That's something that I do with business and relationships. And then also, I think the other component to that is looking at them kind of like we were talking about earlier as getting at a progression, mm. like starting at a saying that I want to get, you know, to D, but recognizing that there are steps in between and kind of divining via experience, via mentorship and advice, um, and, you know, a number of other different, different kind of, uh, venues, how, like how to get from, you know, from point A to, you know, whatever that, whatever that, uh, kind of like distant future goal is. Mm. And, um, keeping the sort of comparison between climbing and life in mind, like we said, at time of recording, we are in quarantine, and I was wondering, out of interest, how does how does being in quarantine compare with hunkering down for waiting for a storm to pass in the mountains? Well, this is this is really interesting. It's something that I have been um, thinking about a lot, and and it's really interesting. Right now, I don't have the ability to really think about short and medium term goals because there is so much uncertainty. Mm. And so with, you know, with the short term, that's all pretty reactive because it has to be, because I can't really plan with, you know, in terms of like, what am I going to do a week from now? You know, I can have a pretty good idea, um, but it's still going to be pretty, pretty heavily determined by, you know, what happens with, with, you know, local, regional and world and national and world events. Similarly, there is a ton of insecurity or a lot of unknown with what's going to be going on three months from now. 
I really have no idea. <laughs> yeah. So that means that I am primarily focused on what I can do right now, today, and what I'm thinking about doing one and two years out from now. And it's actually a pretty amazing space because oftentimes it's easy to forget about those long-term goals. Um, you know, as we kind of get suckered into the short and medium, but yeah. in this space, it's like, great, let's just like, let's not even worry about the medium term goals. Let's just make sure that, you know, right now I have, I have a roof over my head. I have, you know, you know, some, some, you know, like my monetary situation is not, or my financial situation isn't totally totally hosed and you know i'm healthy and happy and my relationship with my wife is good and the dog is happy and like all the just kind of basic the basic day-to-day -day stuff and the coffee and supplies then beyond running. that let's let's think about like what are those big goals and what are the things that i can be doing now to be prepping for those and then as as that kind of, as that kind of medium medium term time frame starts to kind of resolve a little bit then i can then that will you know those long-term goals can help kind of inform those that kind of that you know whatever the next six to 12 months rather than the next 12 to 24 months perfect and so uh, yeah yeah in terms of goal making I, there's a lot of other stuff to get at in terms of like thinking about your neighbors and looking after each other and considering you know all of humanity and all that kind of stuff that's yeah. going on but that's a little uh, another uh, podcast again yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> so um uh, we all have reasons for going to the mountains. And, and again, going back to those exped videos, um, uh, you were asked about uh, your inspiration to go to the mountains. And you answered the question, but you mentioned it was personal. So I, I figured, actually, let's flip it around. We all have reasons to go to the mountains. We're inspired to go to the mountains. But oftentimes, the mountains give it back to us. <laughs> and they, they give us inspiration. And I was wondering, have you ever had any great epiphanies while climbing before? Well, I mean, it's it's interesting kind of relating that back to, uh, you know, where we're at now. Um, you, know, I, you know, it's like on these expeditions, there's way more downtime than there is kind of action time. You know, mm. these, climbs, these climbs themselves normally take, you know, a week or so in terms of, you know, getting up and getting down. But yeah. we'll be gone for two months. Um you know, and that math in terms of like getting climbing done is a little, little tricky. But, but that means that you're provided with a lot of downtime where you don't have your phone blowing up in your pocket all the time. You don't have, you know, whatever email, Instagram, Facebook, all this, all this stuff. You don't have, you know, your buds calling to like go and grab a beverage, uh, you know, in, in the evening. You you have you have way more mental capacity for considering you know kind of like your life and things like that and so i would say that as i look at you know what i you know the great epiphanies from climbing you know it's you know it's it was sitting in a base camp in that you know i probably realized that like my relationship was going really well with with my then girlfriend and we should probably get married or I should probably buy a house or, and like figure out how to do that. Or, oh, I should, you know, I should, you know, move out of the geology world and move into filmmaking, which is like not a, you know, it's kind of, kind of a weird career transition, but I was able to kind of put that together 
while on a trip. And it gave, you know, so on those expeditions, lots of times I have that mental capacity to consider that kind of thing and make that kind of decision and figure out how I can execute on it when I get back, you know, kind of into society. So I would say that, you know, maybe not like while I'm up, like on a climb, you know, kind of in, you know, sort of in the shit. Like, I don't, I don't know if I really have that many like epiphanies up there. Um, <laughs> you know, certainly there's a lot that I take away from it, of course, but, um, but I certainly have, you know, really utilized the time in the big mountains as a time to really consider things, to be considerate of my life, my influence, my goals, my influences, and, you know, what I want the future to look like and kind of designing that and then going back and executing on it. And that's, I I should be very clear that doesn't, that is something I have done with big expeditions, but I think that is something that you can do in natural spaces without like the huge climbing component um, very easily. So that's not something that is like limited to me as like an alpinist. That's something I think that we can all get at um, in terms of, um, in terms of like, you know, go just spending time outside and getting away from all the stuff. Yeah, I agree. I agree. In your words, so don't take offense. You've no. gone from a mega noob leaving conventions with two pairs of socks and a hangover to an award-winning climber with plenty of records set. You've done so much already in your career, but you referred to yourself as humbled when your optimism got you into a tight spot skiing in the Three Sisters Wilderness. And I loved the use of the word um, humble. So you may be like me and appreciate turning failures into favors. So over the last two decades, what are some of the key lessons you've learned from mountain climbing? Well, podcast again. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's really it is really interesting in the sense that, uh, you know. Mountain climbing is a very uh, ego driven activity. Ego in the, you know, not in the, like, negative sense necessarily, in just that sense of, like, I am driven to do this thing. I want to do, you know, I want to do this. I'm going to, I feel like I should look up the definition of ego. Um, is, um, you know, a person's, a person's sense of self-esteem or self-importance. Yeah. So, uh, that's, you know, that's that's where climbing comes from in many ways. It's something that we are inspired to do. We are inspired to see if we are capable of something. And in many ways, it is also giving ourselves the opportunity for what could be construed as greatness. But the thing about the mountains is that the mountains are always bigger and badder than we are. And when it comes to, you know, sometimes sometimes those spaces do give us the opportunity with conditions and weather and, you know, a whole myriad of other things to, to get something done. But it puts us into a space uh, where we don't have that much control, where we have to be very considerate of moving pieces that we have to be reactive to rather than being able to control. You know, and that, it's, it's easy to think when you're down, you know, kind of like in you know, at home, that, like, you have control of a lot of things, but the mountains are this ultimate reminder that, you know, the, the world and the natural world and all the stuff around us are such huge kind of tectonic forces 
that we have to work with. And within those, we can find opportunity within those forces. We can find places where we can really excel. Um, but a lot of what we're constantly trying to do is look for those niches in which we can excel, those places where we can drive greatness or success or whatever, um, or comfort or, you know, security or kind of whatever it is that we're looking for. Um, and it's, but it's all just so much bigger than us. And that's the thing that the mountains always really, always really teach me and something, you know, you're talking about kind of misjudging, misjudging things and the sisters with the wind at that skiing objective, you know, it's something, it's something that's like right on my back door. It's a, it's an objective. It's just training three volcanoes. It's like, it's like 10,000 feet of skiing and over, I don't know, like 15 or 20 miles. And so it's, you know, it's a pretty big objective, but it's, but it's something that's like, you know, I can drive, I can, I can be at the base of this in half an hour, 45 minutes from my house. Yeah. And, um, but that doesn't really matter. Like I still, I looked at the forecast, the forecast looked fine. We got up really early. We went out to start and then we ended up on the top of the first peak and it was, it was blowing over a hundred miles an hour. And, you know, we basically crawled down on hands and knees, you know, and, you know, ran, ran home with our, with our tails between our legs. And it was that <laughs> reminder that, oh yeah, like this is bigger than you. And that is, that is okay. And that is, you know, that is something inspirational, but you always have to take it seriously. Otherwise it will, it will destroy you. Yeah. yeah. That was, that was pretty long. Sorry. No, I like that. I like that. And it's interesting as well uh, that you mentioned the, the ego aspect because uh, from the little information I could get from the next question, you went when you were 22 and you described yourself as being quite um, boisterous. But on this podcast, we usually invite people on to talk about uh, their particular adventure travels. And I know in another episode, we're going to be talking about Pakistani Karakoram. But briefly tell us how your time in Kazakhstan was. Oh, <laughs> okay. So uh, I was in Kyrgyzstan in 2008. It was it was my first big expedition to Asia, and it was a very successful trip. But we really, I, I was not cognizant enough of the dangers that existed in those mountains. And we got very lucky. We got up. We went on a huge route. We didn't really have. You know, we'd gone so light on that route that we didn't have the tools we really needed to like get back down if something went wrong nothing did go wrong and because of that we had a really big success and it was awesome but um it was really interesting reflecting on that experience and saying great like there was success there but actually i did a lot of things incorrectly and you know we talk about you know ego and our self-esteem and self-importance and self-worth you know, part of breaking down our ego is looking at our successes and seeing how we could do better. And that was, that was a really, that was a really big first stepping stone for me to say, Oh, I just put up my first big route in the mountains. It's like 4,600 foot North pillar on this mm -hmm. remote thing, you know, in kind of the, you know, the, the, the Pamirs of Asia. And, um, but, but I didn't do it right. There are things to learn. And it really set me off on a progression of like looking, you know, looking at success, looking at failure and looking at both of those things critically so that I can do better in the future. I guess because because it ended up going well, that's a good example of failure to favor, which is you're thinking uh, we got away with this. Let's see where we can improve. 
But it's towering yeah, mountainscape, though, isn't it? Oh yeah, yeah. The the Kyrgyzstani mountains are unreal. There's it's super cool up there. Perfect. So you've been quoted as saying the difference between climate change and ducking out of high winds is that climate change is not something we can avoid. So <laughs> let's talk about your climate work. Uh, so as I mentioned at the start, you're heavily involved with it and you're rightfully outspoken about it. But in your own words, tell us what you're doing to help and the projects that you're involved in. Well, let's let's kind of start at the beginning and just kind of give a quick kind of brief overview in that, you know, I, I studied glacial hydrology in the university and that was at the same time that I was cutting my teeth in the mountains of New Zealand. And in many ways, I, I kind of gallivanted off into the hills for many years and just went just went climbing, which was great. And, you know, at some point, and I don't know if I, I don't know if I've ever quite articulated from, to myself when exactly this was, but it just really started to become apparent that I knew both from my education and from my experience in the mountains that climate change is real, climate change is a problem, climate change is something we need to deal with. And I didn't know how to deal with it or how to communicate on that. But the realization of the problem and the realization that I had at least some of the tools was a really big deal. And then, you know, uh, shortly thereafter, you know, I think I was probably communicating about that with different folks and the organization Protect Our Winters got in touch about me working with them as an advocate. And Protect Our Winters is an organization based in the United States, based in Colorado, that is started by a fellow named Jeremy Jones, who is uh, one of the one of like the greatest snowboarders, particularly backcountry snowboarders of all time. And he had been through a similar kind of uh, he had had kind of a similar epiphany to me. Um, and and he had set this organization up that basically took a group of athletes and armed them or weaponized them, if you will, as climate advocates and, you know, gave them the information they needed to be knowledgeable and then gave them the tools they needed to utilize their own stories alongside that information about climate change or climate policy to be super effective in the climate policy space. And I was basically brought into the fold there um, this is three or four years ago now. And uh, it's and it was something that I you know I don't I you know it was, it was exactly what I was what I was looking for and mm. something that I've really become quite passionate about and something that you know it's been it's interesting kind of looking back at it in the sense that I was I don't know if I knew quite what I was looking for but you know protector winners kind of did they knew what I needed and since I've I've uh, spent a lot of time lobbying in D.C. I've spent a lot of time lobbying in uh, in the state capitol here in Oregon and Salem. Spent a lot of time presenting on this stuff, you know, in front of thousands of people kind of all over the country. And I spent a lot of time communicating about it, you know, on the Internet and all that kind of thing as well. Yeah. And then I'm also at this point the... Uh, the uh, captain or lead of the Protector Winners Climb program, which means that, you know, in many ways, as we bring new people on, 
I'm I'm part of that onboarding process and part of that kind of organizational process to give them those tools so that we can you know take this program beyond my reach and continue to expand it within the climbing climbing realm yeah and um talking about tools storytelling as you've discussed before um I, you know i even found a video on youtube where i think it had five views um it was like a it was i guess they hadn't they were meant to make it unlisted i think <laughs> and they hadn't um and i saw it and it was like a 10 minute talk of you talking about how you can go about uh implementing change and getting the message out there and it all came back around to storytelling and um and your alpinist career blossomed from storytelling so how was the transition from that into climate change and using stories to to raise awareness there well, it's really interesting. So as we look at the tools that we have in order to be effective, and this is really true with any kind of advocacy, you know, so much of so much ad, of kind of political discussions or issue-based discussions these days are very partisan and divided and people, you know, are it's very easy to kind of get people's hackles up on things. And, and when you do that, when you get somebody and they feel like they're in a confrontation, then they stop paying attention to you. You stop yeah. having the availability of being effective. But what we can do is rather try to meet people where they're at, try to meet people, try to try to have discussions and start discussions that incorporate people's perspectives, incorporate listening to their perspectives and share, you know, engaging with our shared humanity. And if I get into a conversation with somebody, you know, I can say, oh, you're doing it wrong. Oh, climate change is the only thing that matters. Oh, you need to vote this way, or oh, you need to do this. Then I'm, you know, I'm gonna like I'm gonna turn them off. It's, it's I'm I'm not gonna be effective. But if I go and I meet with somebody and I say, hey, listen, like here's my story. Here are my insecurities. Here are my imperfections. Tell me about yours. Let mm -hmm. me listen to you, and let's discuss. And let me tell you how my story my successes combined with my imperfections combined with my insecurities have driven me to action on this particular thing and within that they can find parts of themselves within that story and within those vulnerabilities and that creates a human connection around an issue which is really what we need in order to create change is that human connection. And so yeah. that's really the thing that, you know, as we look at story, as we look at how to connect with others, if we look at how to connect with communities, um, and this is, you know, I talk, I talk about this with climate all the time because for me, climate is the, uh, the pivotal issue of our time. But I think this is true with anything. I think this is true with, you know, when I, when, you know, I get into a heated discussion with, you know, a friend or with my wife or something like that. Like yeah. if, I'm, if I'm only suckered into my own position and my own opinions and not considering anybody else's stance or where they're coming from or where they're at, then we're never going to find common ground. I'll tell you what, there's my degree is um, not as cool as yours. It's, it's in criminology. And oh, wow. there is a really good book called Talking to Terrorists. And okay. that is basically the method you've used there. It basically denounces all the enhanced interrogation techniques that that bush put forward um and it shows just how effective actually talking 
to these people, these these perpetrators, these people they've arrested, talking to them, and suddenly they just spill the beans. Um, huh. And it and it's it's the same method. It, it works with any, anything from an argument with your partner to to terrorism, and and hopefully this is going to work with climate change because it it works. You can't be who who's going to win. It's going to be coming together. Well, it's it's pretty fascinating when we look at. Um, I, I just actually looked up this talking to terrorists book. This looks really interesting. Um, but you know, if, if I look at uh, you know partisan divides in the United States, mm-hmm. if I look at you know I'm very much the like liberal mountain lover, you know, who you know is technologically enabled, is uh, you know kind of on the you know kind of somewhere somewhere on the the kind of like you know near to the cutting edge of the kind of job market and all that kind of stuff, and yeah. you look at the opposite of that politically speaking and it's like a you know gun gun owning farmer or something like that and this is just like really really uh being unkind with uh with stereotypes yeah we're um, going proper stereotypes here but, but yeah go on. <laughs> and 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 i and i don't i don't mean to to do that as much as to say like you know it's like the, a farmer somebody who works in agriculture knows about climate change they 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 recognize it because it is directly tied to their livelihood but they talk about it differently they they use different words they use different references they use a different discourse a different vernacular and so for me to meet somebody like that where they're at is not to tell them something i they don't know mm-hmm. it is to find that middle ground so that we can so that we can you know, share it so we can find shared knowledge. Yeah. And, and, uh, and that's, you know, it's that simple. Yeah. Um, and so it's really, I mean, when you talk about meeting somebody where they're at, it's, it's not necessarily like feeling like, Oh, I need to educate this person. It's like, Oh, I need to like understand this person so that we can actually communicate. Yeah, for sure. And, And in regards to us as lay people, what can we do on and off the trails to to help uh, reduce our impact? Well, I'll tell you what, um, you know, personal impact in terms of climate, in terms of um, environmental stuff is, of course, important to consider. Um, we should all be living examined lives. We should all understand where, you know, what, what our carbon footprint, footprints are, where our impacts are, how we can improve that Mm. but um to be to be quite frank while yes living an examined life is very important um and will you know have benefits far beyond your carbon footprint the thing that we need to do in order to actually create change is to engage with economic incentivization and lawmaking and those are kind of the same thing. They both require the same thing. They both require engaging with our governments, both on the federal level and on you know the state or local level, um, kind of utilizing the the framework of the United States. Um, yeah. And uh, and we need and we need we need to engage in order to make it so that you know these primary polluters, like the folks who generate our electricity, who run our transportation methods, who, tr- who transport goods, who sell goods, so that those entities 
whether they're businesses or parts of government or parts of infrastructure mm. are driven are, are incentivized towards more climate friendly um, carbon neutral solutions and okay. what that means is that a carbon carbon friendly carbon neutral uh, more carbon efficient world is not a world in which we stop traveling we stop driving we stop uh, eating blueberries during you know during the winter time or whatever this is this means that we sh you know we have the methods in place so that we can do those things we need to shift those methods so that they are more carbon efficient imagine if we lived in a world that was primarily run on electronic vehicles if our electricity was primarily renewable so solar wind um power and uh and we had far more efficient long distance travel like more efficient airplanes you know that's that's a world in which like i could go to pakistan to go climbing on a more efficient airline and have that be a much more carbon efficient trip yeah and that's the world we want to live in we don't want to give up everything that we have we don't want to move backwards we want mm. to move forwards and the hardest thing i think for a lot of people as we look at that is that we all have a carbon footprint we are all imperfect advocates if we were the perfect advocate though if we were somebody who didn't use electricity didn't use gas you know lived in a house that didn't have any heating or electricity and we just grew vegetables in the backyard which, to be honest, sounds really nice sometimes, but you would be <laughs> highly ineffective as an advocate. So um, that means what that means is that imperfect advocacy is something that we have to lean into. And we have to kind of reimagine the future that we want so that we're able to, you know, make that future a possibility. And really, when we're talking about that in the States, that means voting. That means calling your representatives that means voting not just on like the presidential elections even though our voter turnout in this country is awful even on those but when you start looking at local and and non um non-presidential years like the numbers drop off big time yeah in their you know they're dismal to start with but we need we need to engage with our governments um and that is how that's how we drive this change that we need um and so that's that's a lot of what we're working with with protector winners is vote call your reps understand where your money is and what it's doing um particularly when it's in like savings or in investment accounts and uh and like find those find those ways that you can drive systemic change and worry worry a little less about your personal impact and worry more about your society's impact mm. I really like that answer too. Yeah, it's spot on. It actually to tie it back into something, it goes it goes back to your short, medium, and long term plans. It's like uh, it would it, don't worry don't worry an awful amount about your <laughs> your short, short term stuff, which is the picking up your litter, but still do it. Uh, it's the yeah. long term. It's go to go go directly to government, like you said. Perfect. I really like that. Yeah, yeah, and it's it just you know it's like imperfect advocacy is okay. We're, like yeah. nobody's perfect. You can't, you can't let that hold you back. Yeah. So I've got one last question before we get to some wrap-up stuff. Yeah. Which is, 
in all of your work in climate and in the two decades of mountain climbing, what is one memory that you would love to relive? You know, I mean, the thing that really comes to mind is is uh, marrying my wife Shannon. It's, I mean, she's been she's she I by by virtue of like the fact that this has been so much of what I've done, she has in many ways been a product of of all this adventure and all this and all this stuff and. And uh, if I look at things that like truly bring me joy, uh, you know, climbing's great, and the partnerships that come from climbing are great. Um, um, and while Shannon and I have never really climbed together that much, um, she's a professional athlete in another sport or retired at this point. But um, but uh, you know, in many ways, I you know I met her through the, on the path I've been walking which has been all about climbing and advocacy and filmmaking and stuff and and uh i mean you know as we look at where we're at right now where we can't leave leave the home we can't really um do much other than engage with this here now uh for me it's really not been that bad because i I get all this time home with her um so yeah so probably i think i think i think marrying shannon is uh i love that is, uh, is my answer. I love that. So some wrap-up questions then. Some nice, quick and easy ones. So, you have slept in some pretty cool places. <laughs> where <laughs> where is the best place? Um, best place, best, best uh, biv, bivouac or something. Yeah. Um, <laughs> That's exactly what I'm thinking. Um... You know, okay, so I really like sleeping in the big mountains when you, you know, you know, you have like, you've got your little tent set up and there's a, there's like a corner, corner of the, uh, corner of the tent hanging off and you're in some wild space. But with all that said, you know, when you're up there climbing on El Capitan and those kinds of routes and you have those portal edges where it's like a hanging tent, it's basically a kind of a little pop out platform. Yeah. Um, that's pretty cool. That's kind of, that's pretty sweet. I really enjoy those, and there it's it's something that as you as you do more and more of that kind of big wall climbing, you learn that you want to stop early and you don't want to get going too early in the morning because because hanging out up there kind of with the with the birds on the wall is kind of the best, and um, and also it tends to be a little warmer. You tend to have a little more food. It tends to be not quite as fast paced as alpine climbing where you're like tired, <laughs> tired and hungry. So I'd say probably, probably like probably those days, those days, uh, you know, there are those nights up on up on El Cap and places like that where you're, you know, hanging out, hanging out in the Portal Edge. Those are those are pretty cool. They're certainly Perfect. more fun than a lot of the kind of Alpine bivouacs. Perfect. So let's talk music quickly. Oh. You've previously named a route Vitology after a Pearl Jam album, so. <laughs> I am expecting some good answers here, but what are your three non-negotiable songs playing whilst you're out on your way out to an expedition? Oh, wow. Um, let's see. So Pearl Jam is very much hometown heroes. Um, uh, gosh, songs that we'll be playing uh, while on a trip. I Let's see. I listened to the uh, Art Angels album by Grimes almost every day I was in Pakistan in 2000. And 17 and i listened to him a lot on this trip as well um cool it's a hell, hell of an album uh, so i'll give you the album then that's good <laughs> yeah i don't know if i had to pick a song off that it would probably be like kill v mame or something like that um 
and then uh, I really I really get into um, funk and Afrobeat. And if I were to pick out a group in that sense, it would be the Polyrhythmics, who are based out of Seattle, and have some just great, great music that is very uh, cutting edge, but also leans into some really wonderful influences from the kind of uh, from the both the, the funk and the jazz and the kind of Ethiopian Af- Afrobeat scenes. Um, if I were to recommend one song by the polyrhythmics uh i would say they have they have kind of funny song names so i'm just gonna make sure i I don't get this wrong um (laughs) probably i mean wolf wolf spider would be a great choice um and then they just they did just drop a new album that has some amazing cuts on it uh i think that the uh, my favorite on that one would probably be Chalada, um, which is a great great song. Um, and then the one of the primary groups that I do a lot of training to is a group called Death Grips, which is um, uh, a combination of industrial <laughs> techno and hardcore hip hop that I really find um, pretty magical and invigorating. And it's not the most positive music, but man, it will get you through. Uh, some hard workouts. And last one, the Pakistani Karakoram holds a dear place in your heart. Uh, so yep. we're going to remove that from this question. Okay, okay. <laughs> this doesn't exist. Um, but if we could <laughs> pick, um, so you got you can choose one mountain to yourself, solo or in a team. Where would you go and why? Or mountain range, seeing as you've done so much. Um. And I can't pick the Karakoram. No. <laughs> um, I would probably say the Waddington Range of British Columbia. Um, spectacularly beautiful. It's not that far from home. Doesn't take that long to get to. Um, and it's remote. It's wild. It's composed of granite. But it's very much a big mountain range. And it's lovely. Well, listen, Graham, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast. Um, if we wanted to find out more, where's the best place to, to go and follow you? Um, you know, probably probably Instagram or, uh, you know, like I have a website that GrahamZimmerman.com that has a bunch of kind of information on it. But Instagram is a great place to kind of keep track of what I'm doing. That's kind of the social platform that I engage with the most. Perfect. Perfect. Well, brilliant. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, thank, thank you, man. It's been fun. What a show. Graham is such a fascinating guy with so much experience. It was great to pick his brain with some of those questions, and I hope you enjoyed it too. If you did, then please consider subscribing and following, and you can share it with a friend too, someone you think may like adventure travel. If you want to come onto the show, then you can email me on btmtravelpod at gmail.com. And if you want to join in with the community, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, it is at btmtravelpod. But otherwise, I hope you have a wonderful day and I will see you in the next episode.